Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Make way this hour for the news of our human prehistory. Could it be that our Stone Age ancestors were just as smart as we are, as playful and strong, if anything, more inventive and adaptive than we, as they settled a whole planet and seeded a great variety of civilizations over 10,000 years? The questions come from a surprise bestseller, The Dawn of Everything. It's a 600-page brick of a book by an anthropologist and an archaeologist sharing fresh evidence and best guesses in a new history of humanity. The sadness in reading it is that the American co-author David Graeber died as he was finishing the great work of his life. The relief is that his writing partner in London, David Wingo, is still grappling with the puzzles they posed. Welcome, David Wingo. The dream in this book of yours is that we could reinvent ourselves in the 2020s, certainly in this century, in the same liberated, searching, unconquerable spirit of the past. Where is that hope in the converging crises of today? In the course of writing the book, we moved away from questions about uh, the origins of inequality in human societies and more towards questions along the lines of how did we get stuck? How did we arrive at a place psychologically, emotionally, where we feel unable to imagine alternative ways of organizing ourselves, where it seems so difficult for people now. You know, there seems to be this pervasive sense of, well, the system we have is really the only one that's viable in this very densely populated, technologically complex world that we live in. Maybe we can improve things here and there, but essentially this is it. We're sort of stuck. David, that word stuck is loaded. Just Mm. what does it mean to you? I mean, here we are, we've explored space, we've reinvented our industrial world around digital technology. Where's the stuck problem? Well, I'll give you an example. In the book, we describe societies that actually flipped their whole social structures around once or even twice a, a year from relatively egalitarian to relatively hierarchical forms. There are actually lots of examples of this in the uh, the ethnographic record. We have examples of societies that alternated between uh, things like uh, hunting and gathering and agriculture. Right. This kind of fluidity and flexibility, this ability to create entirely different forms of societies. I mean, at some point, roughly uh, 5,000 years ago, people started living in cities. It wasn't some kind of automatic consequence of the agricultural revolution. It was actually a conscious experiment, and the experiment looks very different depending which bit of the world you choose to focus on. So that's a level of uh, innovation and social experimentation that I think we struggle with today. I mean, if you look at the way people are trying to reimagine cities now uh, in the light of climate change, Yeah, I mean, there are suggestions here and there about how we might do this, but given the kind of capacities we have today technologically, they're kind of timid. David, what is your favorite example, if there is one in our past, of a top-down, unequal society going communal and more nearly equal? Yeah. And doing the pattern of domination? 
there are lots of examples of this. I guess our favorite one is probably the ancient city of Teotihuacan in the Valley of Mexico. I learned from your book that Teotihuacan went from human sacrifice to public housing. By the way, it's one of my ambitions to, to go there in the very near future. I was planning. Take us with you, please. If you do go, what you can expect to see there are the great monuments. Right. When archaeologists started investigating those structures, they found something very disturbing, which are the bodies of what appear to be captives. Mm. Many of them are bound, and they're actually buried in lines under the foundations of the pyramids and under the foundations of the temple. It's quite disturbing if you think about it. So these are people who've been ritually killed and then buried as part of the construction process. So it doesn't get more hierarchical than that. (laughs) I'm going to bury my enemies under my pyramid. And all of that happens within the first one or two centuries of the city's existence, so about the year zero up to about 250 A.D., And then where does all of that labor go? Where does all of the resources go that we're going into building monuments? It goes into the construction of housing. And suddenly, well, not suddenly, over a period of generations, this city, which has a population of around 100,000 people, and that's a conservative estimate, by the way, is converted into probably one of the most successful social housing experiments of all time. The whole thing is designed on a grid, and you have these luxury villas in which almost the entire population of the city appears to have lived, with maybe three or four nuclear families in each block, and there's a central courtyard. These are really nice buildings, actually. When uh, when archaeologists started excavating them, they thought they were palaces, and they realized that everyone's living in one. The murk is lifting, and it's stunning for a reader like me to meet these Native American chiefs of the 17th and 18th centuries, in your book, they're confident, persuasive thinkers about human nature, about Mm -hmm. liberty, especially, about individual rights. They're ready for argument about the nature of authority, decency, social responsibility, and above all, freedom. Unforgettably, there's the Huron chief, Kandiaronk, who oversaw the great peace of Montreal in 1701, peace among his own Hurons and the Iroquois and the French. The amazing piece is that when Candiroc and other indigenous North Americans made it to Paris, they were not impressed. No, that's right. Um, We don't actually know for a fact that Candiroc went to Paris, but he certainly would have been very familiar with French colonial towns. And you're talking about somebody who was independently described by different Europeans who met him and left records as a brilliant uh, individual, warrior, diplomat, but also just a superb orator and intellect. Those French Jesuits who talked extensively with Candiron presumably got it right that he was scathing on the Europeans. They quote him saying, For my own part, I find it hard to see how you could be much more miserable than you already are. He said, I have spent six years reflecting on the state of European society, and I still can't think of a single way they act that's not inhuman. And it's not isolated. There's a remarkable consistency in their low opinion of Europeans, and it focuses around a number of core issues that that come up again and again and again in these sources. 
They didn't like money, for example. They called Money's it a big one. The devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evils. Question, imagine people in the United States, for example, reading this book, living in cities or suburbs, it would be hard for a lot of them to imagine life without our governing hierarchies in the law, in the neighborhood, at the workplace. What are you suggesting for activism, for self-liberation of this society? Well, we're not. If you read the book, it doesn't have any prescriptions. It doesn't have any policy prescriptions. David Graeber, to be fair, though, was that kind of guy. He was up to his neck in, in Occupy, and he meant it. There was a hope for changing this country. That's right. But that doesn't mean uh, that this particular book is that sort of book. It's not a dogmatic book. It doesn't say this is the way forward. But it says there are conversations to be had which have been closed off by what we would characterize as a false prospectus of human possibilities, of human capacities. Our whole point, really, is that people have always been able to make decisions, ethical decisions, moral decisions, between these kinds of alternatives as far back as we can trace the evidence. At the same time, I feel with, with some pleasure that we're meeting the mind and spirit of David Graeber as never before. David Graeber unbound, an incredibly learned man, guru of the Occupy movement, sometime professor of anthropology at Yale, an inspiration to students, but elusive, hard to reach if you weren't sitting next to him. I guess, I mean, I was very fortunate to be sitting next to him a lot, but I'm sure <laughs> that's true. <laughs> But in life and in print, uh, David Graeber was always making a case for his definition of anarchism, which was not chaos, but was a kind of, he, he didn't care about titles. He never got tenure at Yale and didn't bother him a bit, apparently. Kept moving, always grazing in new territory and thrilled to be as free as he was. In what sense was he going out into history and to anthropology mm. to prove what he was born knowing, in a sense. The thing about David is he was a really superb scholar. Yes. We're not talking about some sort of naive uh, ideologue who wants to, you know, if we'd wanted to write some mythical polemic or political manifesto, we could have written a really, really short book with no references, right? right. <laughs> this is a 700-page tome with 163 pages of bibliography and notes. We're serious about this stuff. This is our bread and butter. So this is not like some whimsical, you know, indulging anarchist uh, history or something. This is a big project, you know, it's more than 10 years of work on and off. David, in all these societies, from Yucatan to the Indus River, what's your favorite from our prehistory? You mean the, the one I might like to have actually lived in? Yeah, exactly. I would have loved to try out life in one of these early Ukrainian cities, they seem to have found a way to have the most exuberant domestic life. You know, there's uh, thousands and thousands of people living in these settlements, which are 6,000 years old, and every household has the most exquisite suite of uh, crockery. You know, if you go to a museum, some of the most beautiful prehistoric pottery in the world was made by these people in their houses, and we can only imagine what was going on in other materials that, that are less durable than terracotta. But the interesting thing is, although they formed really massive urban settlements, there doesn't seem to have been any kind of central authority. There are no palaces, no temples, no rich burials, 
no fortifications. In other words, they seem to have come up with an amazingly egalitarian form of urban life that didn't actually try to make people all the same. Every household was still incredibly individual and creative. It's like a huge, uh, I don't know, like a massive artist's colony or something. Do we know how long it lasted? About 800 years, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty good by, uh, you know, compare it to, to our current system. Yeah. Uh, let's see if we get anywhere close to that. David Wingo, it's an incredibly interesting book, and you're a wonderfully interesting talker, too. Thank you for all your work, and thank you for this conversation. It's really my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Coming up, that indigenous critique, the native pushback into the present day. This is Open Source. We're fired by a new history of humanity from the Davids, Graeber, the anthropologist, and Wingro, the archaeologist. The Dawn of Everything, their blockbuster, is 600 pages on what Western Europe learned and didn't learn about the world it was conquering in the 1700s and after. Our guest, Philip Deloria, grew up inside the Native response. He is Harvard's first tenured professor of Native American history. He's a descendant of a distinguished family in the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, I'm asking him if he could picture for us those conversations between Huron Indian leaders and French Jesuit priests around Great Lakes, Michigan, from roughly 300 years ago. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that happens when Native people meet up with Europeans, Europeans don't assume, or at least we've been taught that Europeans don't assume that those Native people are their intellectual equals. But the fact is, is that they always are, and they always have been, right? They're human beings with their own traditions of debate, of thinking about things, of arguing points out, um, you know, and of course they see Europeans and they pass their own kinds of judgments based in the societies and the cultures in which they live, you know, and they find the Europeans lacking. It's quite clear and it's quite a, a steady pulse of inadequacy that Native people find. They find Europeans to be dishonest. They find them to be obsessed with property. They find them to have a kind of warped sense about what law and crime and freedom look like. They find that their class structures and their leadership mechanisms are, are faulty. They find that they're untrustworthy. All of those things, right, are part of a long tradition of Native or Indigenous critique um, when folks run into Europeans. And it stretches from the very beginnings, first contact up to the present day. So what do they decide to talk about? From God to man to justice to family to freedom, equality, where does the conversation range? Well, it covers all those things, but it does seem to me that property and sort of the abstract values attached to money, that these things really do center a lot of what goes on in those kinds of conversations, right? I mean, the argument is basically, look, Europeans, we look at you and we see the ways that your interior of your society is so dysfunctional, right? Because you don't share things, right? Because you have notions of property, because you have hierarchies that are based on property um, and ownership. And I don't want it to seem as if like it's this kind of utopian thing where nobody has more than anyone else, right? But there's a continual flow in most Native societies of redistribution of items and goods and things. And there's a corresponding lack of attachment, right, to certain things because you're going to give something away to somebody and you're going to get something interesting coming back in return. And so there's a kind of a flow around material objects that really cuts against the grain of property. And I, I think that's the, the key and the core um, because once you take that critique 
And then you think about the ways that Europeans convert land into property, right? That becomes the root of the dispossession of indigenous people kind of from start to finish. Mm. How open is the disdain? In Kondiorong's case, it was scathing. Well, it's particularly nicely written, right? I mean, this sort of informal, <laughs> well, what do you think about this? I'll tell you what I think about that, right? And you can see, you know, this kind of dialogic kind of response. I think the contempt was actually oftentimes quite open. You know, these are folks who are quite confident in their own ways of being, and they see people who just really don't quite measure up. I think it's also really important to note the ways that Europeans, particularly as they begin, you know, their sort of journey into North America and into the interior, Later on, they'll be saying things about, you know, Indian degeneracy and savagery and things like that. But when they first confront Indian people, and this happens across the continent, you know, what they find are people who are incredibly healthy. They are large. They are strong. They are smart. I mean, they are formidable people. And in that sense, right, these are people who have every right to look at Europeans and see people who are, you know, kind of small and petty and dirty. Wow. Graeber and Wengro write about the indigenous critique going back thousands and thousands of years. You're part of a very lively tradition that continues to this day. But can you judge the authenticity of what the Davids are reporting about ancient, prehistoric times? I'm not sure I'm in a position to judge every one of the arguments there. But I think I am in a position to affirm some of the things that they're saying, right? Which are basically a pushback or reversal or an inversion of kind of old narratives of social evolution, which always figure the indigenous as a stand-in for something that is ancient and archaic, right? This sort of idea that, you know, human beings must necessarily evolve and, and they must start in sort of roving nomadic bands. And therefore, the people that exist in the present are always framed as being, you know, of the past. And they will evolve from there into pastoralists and chieftains and tribes and nations, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? So there's the Europeans build a teleological system that always puts themselves at the beginning. Because they do that, they have to insist that both the people of the past and the people they want to frame as being primitives in the present right, are inferior to them. You know, what Graeber and Wingro do is to remind us that's a myth, it's a fiction, it's an ideology that justifies where we're at, and that there is no reason to sort of imagine the inferiority of the people of the past. So why is this so new to me? Why was it so left out of my pretty superior education? All the things I'm learning from Graeber and Wengo. This is a self-justifying ideology. It being such, it makes absolute sense that this is exactly what we will teach our children. But I have to say, it's not as if the pieces of this critique haven't existed. Ethno-historians in the 1970s kind of demonstrated pretty conclusively that the flow of Europeans into native societies, people who were going native, far outweighed the flow of native people who had any interest in taking part in European society. So why was that? It was because a whole series of Europeans looked out at Indian life and thought, dang, I think I want that rather than this thing that I've got now. Mm. What do we know about the argument around God? I'm told, in effect, that the Indian objection was how can your God be almighty if we don't know him, if he hasn't made himself known to us? So what does an indigenous sort of concept, you know, of the sacred look like? 
there's always a sense that indigenous people are seen as primitive animists, you know, kind of people who haven't actually thought about stuff, who have a, an emotional thing or an instinctual thing or a feeling kind of experience of the sacred, right? So indigenous spiritual experience is both an experience of the sacred, but also an experience, right, of the rational, right, and the logical, mm. the conversational, the debate, the experimental. You know, we have these two categories called religion and science in the West. Right. When you apply those to Native people, they don't make sense. Religion is far too narrow a category to understand Native knowledge of the world and of the sacredness of the world, which is larger than that. And science is too narrow and too Western a category, but could also be applied to that same knowledge system. So my sense of this is throw away science, throw away religion when we talk about these things, but keep those ideas in the back of your head when you talk about Native spirituality, because both those things are going on. Experiences of the phenomena of the world, some of which is incredibly mysterious and complicated, but which can be known through a process that we might actually think of as being scientific. Experimentation, you know, speculation, investigation, passing knowledge mm. along. This is how Native religion, quote-unquote, actually works. In human relations broadly, imagine what the Native Americans are observing and telling the Europeans about two sensitive issues still today, equality and freedom. They're exactly right, Graber and Wingrow, on this, is that, you know, freedom and equality are, in effect, sort of dialectically related to one another. Yes. That to have freedom, true freedom of the individual, is in some ways to generate equality and to sort of imagine a relationship of equality is in some ways sort of like productive of freedom. What's interesting about this, though, and I think it's really important, is that the individual has liberty, has freedom to act within the world of the collective. So it's not the kind of like free form, individual, radical individualist libertarianism, you know, that we see today out in our political kind of language. It is individualism and freedom within the bounds of the collective. Leadership as charisma. Right. Yes. And this is part of the argument I think that they make quite rightly about eloquence and reason. The indigenous leader tends to be the charismatic leader because people don't necessarily have to do what that leader wants. Right. And thus individualism and freedom not to be constrained by another person, not to be bossed around and told. And yet those free individuals are making choices to follow and be part of a collective. And so charismatic leadership ends up being really important. The ability to persuade rather than the ability to force, you know, I think is really critical. So it's a non-compulsory form of social organization between the leader and the rest of the people who are part of that group. Phil Deloria, make what you will of this book as an event. Instant bestseller, much talked about at a lot of levels, in terms of our own self-understanding, in our relations with the rest of the world, which is mostly not us, where does it move the conversation, do you think? For me, the retelling of all these old stories has everything to do with making the argument that the indigenous in the present day and the nomad, right, the nomadic you know, band or tribe of the past are not inferior, right? They're absolutely equal. And so I think some of the archaeological stuff that ends up being in here is that's really interesting, right? That cities didn't necessarily require social hierarchy. Nomadic peoples could build giant monuments and could come together and do things like this. Engineering skills and things like that follow along. And suddenly we've got a really different picture of all those people in the past. And I think 
for me, the urgency of rethinking that is that we sit in a moment of climate change, in a moment where we're going to be confronting like massive disruptions in the ways in which we live. We could do worse than to take apart the narratives that have brought us here and rethink them and maybe enter whatever the new conversations are with just a bit more humility, right? Not seeing ourselves as the pinnacle of thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years, you know, of some kind of social evolution, but just being one more society that's made certain decisions in certain ways. When you think of this incredible succession of civilizations, long and short, of all different stripes, you realize we're lucky to be here and we should savor the moment while we can, but nothing is forever. And nothing is the end either. I started hearing Native people maybe 15 years ago say, well, you know, the U.S. isn't going to last forever. It might end in our lifetime. I thought, well, that's cool. That's a neat polemical statement. You know, 15 years on, dang, it doesn't sound so crazy. And if we think about, oh, what do we have? 250 years. You know, you think about some of these societies that lasted, you know, a thousand years, or you think about some of these cave paintings where people are painting stuff on the walls 10,000 years apart from each other, right? I mean, it has to put your head in a different space when we think about time and temporality, success, and what success does and doesn't look like. It's pretty clear that if our world completely falls to pieces, we're not going to reproduce that world. We've already burned all the fossil fuels that would get that thing started. So that's not coming back. And so we got to think, what's the next world actually maybe going to look like? Who knows? It could look like a lot of the stories that we find in that book. Wow. Phil Deloria, what does the indigenous critique, the Native American view of us, of all of us, sound like today? I've been thinking along the lines of what I'm calling the five things that Native people say. (laughs) Okay. And some of them are quite specific to the American kind of context in which they were in. So the first thing I think that Native people say is exactly the point of this book, which is to say, we have never understood you, right? We've never really got it when it comes to property and work and freedom and crime and bodily control and individualism. We have observed you and, and we have figured you out, you know, in some ways, but we've never understood where you're coming from. So the first thing that Native people say, I think it has to do with this kind of indigenous critique. Second thing is, we are still here. Native people have to keep saying that because there is a constant effort to sort of erase Native people. And, you know, the dispossession of Native people from the land, the sort of push towards shrinking and exterminating and assimilating, all of these things always creates a context in which Native people must insist upon their continued viability, right, as peoples, as societies, as in the United States case, sovereign nations. So we never understood you. We're still here. Third thing, we're not like the others. And I think for Native people in the U.S. today, that really is an assertion about what tribal sovereignty and tribal nationalism and political rights looks like. Because Native people, because of the history of treaties, are not like any other racial or ethnic group in the United States. And so when we talk Hmm. about, you know, civil rights and things like that, there's always a sense that, like, we have to qualify that by talking about treaty rights and diplomacy and political uniqueness. So this is the third thing that Native people say. Fourth thing, we want our stuff back, you know? And so some part of that is we want our land back, but it's not just limited to that, right? It's that we want the human remains of our ancestors back who sit in museums, We want our cultural patrimony back. We want the funerary objects that were sent as traveling goods with those human beings. The more time you spend in museums thinking about that particular history and thinking about what is held 
the more upsetting it really is. So that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing is we have things to say that might be of interest to other people, right? And I think some part of it, this goes back to the indigenous critique, right? We have certain kinds of ideas, we have experiences, we have knowledges that are really interesting, really useful. I think when we're talking, for example, about reparations for slavery, there's something useful to be thought about in that conversation by turning to Native folks with their own kinds of political trust relationships, sovereignty relationships, you know, with the federal government. When we're talking about climate change and we're talking about resource management and, you know, plants and animals and critters, Native people have stuff to say that's really interesting and important. I mean, I've been struck, for example, by the ways that biologists are, if we went back, you know, 150 years and biologists was talking to a Native person, they'd say, well, you know, the forest is alive. The trees communicate with each other. They speak to each other. The soil is alive. Dang, if 150 years later, this isn't exactly what, you know, biologists are now saying. And we've been sort of, I think, overwhelmed in this beautiful way with this sort of new research about forests and about soil and about fungal communications and about the shifting of resources among plants. But this is a native thing, right? Native folks have understood that for a very long time. So I think it's easy to see this is something that native people have to say or to contribute, something where native people were right, you know, a long time ago. And I think Mm. just to move us back in the direction, you know, of religious, spiritual, scientific kind of nexus, it's pretty interesting and pretty fun to listen to, you know, a kind of string theorist, you know, high-edge physicist talking about particles and waves and, you know, all the kinds of new interesting things that go on in physics, because at the far edge, those folks can sound a lot like what a spiritual medicine person might have sounded like 150 years ago. Phil, is there a site, a group, that illustrates this Native critique even today? Where would you go to hear not only the content, but the style of argument, inquiry, debate in the Indigenous critique? I think there's any number of places you could go, right, to find this. As much as the European and the American kind of political structures have tried to eradicate this from Native people, and as much damage and harm has been done, and there's no doubt about that, one of the amazing things about Native people today is what the Anishinaabe theorist Gerald Visner calls survivance, right? This, This ability to survive, to resist, to find life, to not take on the position of the victim, to have an autochthonous interiority, a kind of solidity that lasts over time, you know, that is Native and Indigenous, that gets reproduced in the kind of social world in which Native people live. I think you can go to almost any community in North America and find these kinds of things, right? You can find the indigenous intellectual, right, who is sitting there today with the same kind of critique. And now we live in a complicated world. It's not the same as it was in the 18th century. And I wouldn't want to sort of imagine that it was or claim that it was. But the vestige of that, right, and the continual renewal of that is findable, you know, all across Indian country. Well said. And that's a great joy. Bill Deloria, thank you so much. And tell me that you'll coach my education too late in life, but on an amazing story. Chris, I will coach. (laughs) Thank you for joining us again, Bill Deloria. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Coming up, a roundtable of historians on this dawn of everything. Joyce Chaplin, Robin Kelly, and Peter Leinbaugh are our guests. This is Open Source. 
Historians and critics are having a field day on the landscape of the Graeber-Wengro New History of Humanity. We're sampling the talk with three of them. Joyce Chaplin is professor of early American history at Harvard. She's prolific on topics where humans and nature meet. I asked her, what's new, what's true in this dawn of everything? It's obviously a really ambitious project and exhilarating and important, and especially its attack on any sense that societal inequality is ingrained somehow in people and in history, that it's ingrained in human nature, it results from natural circumstances, it's an inevitable outcome of civilization, so-called, and there's a linear development of it that somehow now seems inescapable. And I think it's great to take this all down and to point out how much of it is nonsense, that the human record does not support any kind of linear conclusion about this. So I really think it's wonderful to have it out there for public debate. Suddenly, don't we all want to know more about this so-called indigenous critique, this view of us from clearly human beings, but who have a very, very different mindset. It was a wonderful insight of the book and a great phrase, indigenous critique. And I really expect that that is going to take off and people are going to be using that to revalidate the perspective, not from the European core that turns out through imperialism to become dominant, not that they deserve to, but there it is. And the critique of the non-European populations watching what's going on, therefore, turns out to have powerful lasting value in terms of questioning, well, why does it have to be this way? What on earth do you think you're doing? Where would we go looking for it usefully today, do you think? If we were to look at the Standing Rock protest against the pipeline that was supposed to run across the ancestral land of the Standing Rock Sioux. That was a protest that very clearly used an indigenous critique of Western capitalism and development of natural resources. So that is just one example of many that are becoming more and more visible if you look in different parts of the world where people are not necessarily using Western ideas about conservation and environmentalism, they are bringing long, long traditions and an understanding of what is called deep time, uh, kind of geological scale of history, to defend uh, the natural world and also themselves. You know, we're all sort of fascinated by the popularity of these arguments and this book. It's extraordinary for a scholar's 600-page text but I get to feel the world was waiting for this news. People understand it better than our governments, our media, our general public conversation. That's a very interesting point, because I do think that the book is cheerful yes. <laughs> in an odd way. It's really, really optimistic and encouraging and saying, no, we don't have to be our worst selves. Look at all the other options. Look at the way other populations, other cultures said, hey, don't be that way, or what on earth do you think you're doing? And I think it's especially liberating that it doesn't have this teleology of like, well, the following fall into place, and that's the way it's going to be forever and ever and ever. No, we can rethink that. The title of the book, The Dawn of Everything, mm. it could not be more ambitious to explain everything in a book. But I think that we're at a moment where we want big histories, and we want answers to our largest questions. 
And will the book solve everything? Is this a solution to everything? No, they don't claim that. And I don't think they mean that. And the bigger issue that the book raises is why don't we rethink things more radically rather than situationally, we solve this small problem, we solve that small problem. We really kind of need to rethink the whole way we live. And we can do that. Joyce Chaplin, immensely refreshing. And thank you. Thank you so much. Robin D.G. Kelly at UCLA writes provocatively across the board of African-American history and culture, music in particular. You've read a lot of books in the last 30 years, Robin Kelly, but you say this is the most profound and exciting one. Explain that. The book was astounding for revealing the wide array of social organization around the world of forms of urbanization without necessarily ruling classes, of origins of the state as not being a singular origins. But if there's a takeaway from the book, it's two things. One, our quote-unquote ancestors were way more inventive and creative and imaginative than our contemporaries in terms of just how do you imagine social organization? The forms are just endless. The second thing is that nothing is inevitable, that what we have inherited wasn't the inevitable march of progress. Robin, you say it overturned every thought you ever had about history. An example, please. Well, reading about Kandian Rock. Yeah, the wise man among the Hurons. Yes. You know, so much of the rise of societies cannot be determined strictly by material conditions. That, that to me, is the most important element of the way the book forced me to rethink history. Because what you begin to see is sometimes it's the monopoly not of material resources, but sometimes spiritual resources, sometimes access to gods. Sometimes it is certain skills or access to knowledge and information, or as they put it, a certain level of charisma. Now, having said all that, I guess I'm less inclined to make an argument from the book about where do we go from here, what, what's possible. Mm-hmm. Because what they're suggesting isn't go to the past for models for the future. You go to the past to show that we have the capacity to make all kinds of models, that the ancients actually made decisions not based on a kind of mechanical response to resources and environment, but based on political discourse. Robin Kelly, in this book and elsewhere, what is happening to the Enlightenment and its standing all of a sudden? The famous age of reason and science and free speech. Can we call it an unmasking of the Enlightenment? An unmasking is a really interesting way to put it. What I think the book lays out is that the Enlightenment was not a settled matter. It was a debate. It was a debate coming from all sorts of directions. There were people like Abbe Renal who actually took an anti-imperialist, anti-slavery, even anti-racist position as Enlightenment thinkers, but they were the minority. However, to go back to the book, what they're arguing is that people traveled around through settler colonialism, through imperialist expansion, encountered people who actually critiqued European society critiqued what they saw and heard, and presented to them an alternative. And part of the alternative that Jesuits had heard from speakers like Candian Rock and others 
was that there are other ways to govern and other ways of being, other ways of exchange, of economic exchange, other ways of caring for those who need care. So you have practices that would be considered quite radical, social housing, social organization, mass democracy, which precedes the Enlightenment. And what they argue, I think correctly, is that the European explorers didn't even come out of a tradition or understanding of democracy. We assume that democracy had its birth in Western Europe. And we don't even have the dates right. Even during the French Revolution, it's not like there was democracy before that moment, like mass democracy. And what the French Revolution produced was a momentary window into what's possible, and it gets shut down immediately. The Graeber-Wingrow line is that it's up to us to act, and it's very strange that we haven't acted to change our circumstances before now. So what is the cue to a movement, activism, imagination, surprise? I would say that we have acted. I guess this depends on where. So, for example, movements like Idle No More or what's happening in Detroit, the attempt at trying to create new commons in Detroit, new forms of public safety, new forms of social housing through community land grants, new forms of energy, finding forms of wind and solar power that people themselves create. Jackson, Mississippi and Toronto, places like that, you find these interesting experiments of social practice, democratic practice. I think the abolitionist movement itself is the most dynamic movement we have right now that's calling for changing everything, calling for people to fight not to preserve the status quo. I mean, you know, we have all this talk about, like, democracies in peril. But what are they actually arguing for? They're arguing for the preservation of the status quo. That is, reverse voter suppression laws. Abolitionists and other radicals, who I think are much closer to sharing the radical imagination that Graeber and Wengro bring, they're saying, we didn't even want that democracy. We want something better. We want participatory budgeting. We want control of the land. Uh, We want decolonization. And the struggle to decolonize, like the struggle for reparations around the globe, is the movement I think they're talking about. I think that's the excitement around the book. But again, the book is very cautious. They're not saying this is a roadmap to revolution. They're saying this is a cautionary tale about what we think is inevitable and what really isn't. Robin Kelly, such a pleasure to engage you like this. Thank you. It's always great to talk to you, Chris. You know, it's always given me a lot to think about. Thank you. (laughs) Peter Leinbaugh is British-born and educated and is taught all over the U.S. His specialty is the often hidden histories of colonial America and the Caribbean. He says the work of Graeber and Wingrow fits right in. I'm not sure I've read a book like it. Yes, they come up in revolutionary times. Interesting. Yeah, the first one was right after the American Constitution in 1790. Volney wrote such a book called The Ruins of Empire Hmm. after the French Revolution, which called for liberty, equality, and fraternity. Then again, after the Russian Revolution, you have H.G. Wells doing the outline of history or the story of man, as he called it. And the next year, Henrik van Loon wrote The History of Man, the story of mankind, rather. And this was right after the Russian Revolution, which called for peace, bread, and land. I'm inclined to put David Graeber and David Wengrow's book in that context 
though these two people are trained archaeologists and anthropologists, and the strength of their discipline shows on every page. Let's call them the Davids. Good. So the question is, why is this book, almost unheralded, so hot? It entered the Times bestseller list at number two, has slipped to number nine. How do you explain that appetite? I think it would be easy to speak about David Graeber's personality. That is, that he was a politically powerful figure to a rising generation, unencumbered by Cold War habits of thought. Mm. But I think there's a profounder answer to your question, which has to do with the nature of our times now, when a youthful generation, scarcely two decades old, is deeply concerned about the fossil fuel crisis that has led to the planetary disorder, the perturbations of the whole Earth system, as arising from the inequality, as arising from the systems of domination that prevail. And that generation are looking for other ways of life than the proletarian, slavish existence of the past. Yeah, the, the mass resignation movement, a certain back to the farm, or back to rural living movement. Yeah, that's well put. There's a back to movement, <laughs> but it's not nostalgic. And this is true of this book, too. It's not nostalgic. It's not romantic. It's looking for solutions in the many, many forms of life. You know, he speaks of the hippie commune. He speaks of the biker gang as like two poles of domination and reciprocity. And then whether it's the Iroquois or the Yamamani or Amazona or Turkey or Egypt or Mahenjadaro in the Indus Valley, all over, these guys have such an encyclopedic knowledge of human societies from the Ice Age on. They're searching for uh, solutions. And this is what young seekers are doing as well. They seem to be saying that our history is not linear in any way. It's experimental all over the place, repeats itself, and it's not heading toward any one end, much less the world we're living in. It's not a tale of progress. No, it's not. It's not a tale of progress. A couple of points on the playfulness that runs through David Graeber's whole view of everything. History is a product of culture, imagination, chance, surprise. He makes an interesting point that women always neglected in the big story, play crucial parts. For example, the bright idea of putting yeast in wheat to make bread had to be a woman's inspiration. Yes, that's overwhelmingly likely. History in that sense is made by the cooks, not by the military heroes. Every cook can govern, the great uh, saying of C.L.R. James. Aha. Uh -huh. That's the key. Come back to the setting of this book, In Our Omni-Crisis, and he's going to very fundamental questions. What is the human being? What is human nature? What are the flexibilities within any definition of human nature? Um, we stress his playfulness, but I think we need to see that as an aspect of freedom. And in this book, he describes what freedom is in a threefold way. Number one is freedom to move. Yes. Number two is freedom to disobey. Yes, to say no. To say no. I hear your orders, I hear your, your rules, but sorry, I'm, I'm going another way. This war is not for me. Right. And people have got away with it throughout history. 
Yes. And third, they've built something new because the third freedom is the freedom to make friends or the freedom to make a promise, the freedom to create your own social relations. Where does a book like this move us, Peter? I think it it moves us out of the cage that we're in of capitalism. Silicon Valley is the only way to go in the future. That ceaseless accumulation is a dead end. Hmm. And that there's so much freedom available. The David's great annoyance in all this history is that people don't realize their freedoms and that a species that has continuously changed the organization of society seems to accept being stuck now. What if people grasp the fact that they can say no, that they really can build another system, and that our kind has done it over and over again in thousands of years of history? That's the gift of this book. Can I just quote one of their sentences? Please. The Davids say that if mutual aid, social cooperation, civic activism, hospitality, or simply caring for others are the kind of things that really go to make a civilization, yes. then the true history of civilization is only just starting to be written. Interesting. It's asking us to define civilization, and once we do, then to look for it in our past and see how others have done the same. This is the importance of the indigenous movement. This is what people are trying to build all over. Peter Leinboy is the author, most recently, of Red Round Globe Hot Burning. Thank you, Peter Leinboy. Thanks also to Robin Kelly, Philip Deloria, Joyce Chaplin, David Wingo, and the late David Graeber, whose book with David Wingo is The Dawn of Everything. Our show this week was produced by Adam Coleman and George Hicks with engineering help from the WBUR production team. Special thanks to Bicycle Mark Rendiro. Mary McGrath put the yeast in our wheat. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time for Open Source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of smart, independent podcasts, including The Constant, a history of getting things wrong, from host Mark Chrysler. In his three-part episode, Long Story Short, Mark's taking a deep dive into the toughest riddle humanity ever solved, the where are we question, and the invention of longitude. Listen at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts, and check out the whole Hub and Spoke lineup at hubspokeaudio.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.